your Bibles, let's open up to the prophet Isaiah. We'll read the same passage we did last week, but in our time together, we will look at the second half. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. This is God's word. Be broken, you peoples. Be be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say of you, inquire of the Medians and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they not inquire, should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their kingdom, king and their God, and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has brought glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at their harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. And as Isaiah later tells us, it does not return void. It goes out and accomplishes all that God purposes for it. In January 2018, um, I was on a three-country tour with Pastor Christian into Southeast Asia. We not were only talking about church merging, we were getting to know one another, um, getting to see where he had ministered years before. One of the places, our last trip, the last step of our trip was in Bangkok, Thailand. Um, we were visiting Bagna Christian Fellowship, um, where he had many friends. And our host was one of the pastors there, a Thai pastor, Pastor Leslie Quay. And then we got talking about politics and social differences between Thailand and the U.S. Um, see, when I'm traveling around Thailand or Bangkok, everywhere I was going, there were these almost looked like shrines um, with a picture of the king, a portrait of the king, um, kind of framed in gold, flowers and everything, all over the city. And according to the Thai constitution, the king shall be enthroned in a position of revered worship, and this shall not be violated. No person shall expose the king to any sort of accusation or action. Well, that's happened, though, because people are getting arrested um, because he's married a, one of his mistresses and polygamous and seems to be a playboy of sorts. But as a foreigner visiting this land, you're subject to the laws of that land. And um, Pastor, our Pastor Quay, we got talking, he said, Derek, what do you think the best form of government is? Let me ask you, what do you believe is the best form of human government? Anarchy in a summer life. Are we going to do fine if we have no laws and no institutions? Just set up some autonomous zones and see how it goes? Dictatorship? Just one who rules through fiat? Just oppressive rule? What about democracy? Is democracy the best form of human government? Are we a democracy? What about a republic? See, those are the words that get confused for us. The United States is a constitutional republic with democratically elected representatives. A pure democracy is this. It is two wolves and a sheep taking a vote for what they're going to have for lunch. That's, that's pure democracy. And you get a vote, sheep, but you're going to be outvoted two to one. 
A Republican state has representatives. The idea of our founders is that a republic with representatives would be such that a minority would not be totally out of power, but a minority would always have a voice and be able to speak into the government of the day. And what a time we find ourselves in this day. The United States is a most unique and exceptional enterprise. People from around the world want to move here. But to the question, what is the best form of government? As Pastor Quay and I were talking, you know what his answer was? A benevolent monarchy. And that kind of caught me. A benevolent monarchy. Derek, don't go down that road. We, we already cast off the throne. We, we, we were across. We made the Mayflower Compact. We're going to... But a benevolent monarchy. The thing is, in my heart, I want to be my own sovereign. In my own heart, I want to be my own majesty. And what a common grace for 200 years that if that's in each of our hearts, for a constitutional republic to even make it. But also in my heart, I want to be taken care of. In my heart, I want to be protected. In my heart, as much as I buck, I want to know that someone else is in charge. And so the answer that Pastor Quay gave is a benevolent monarchy kind of arrested me in that conversation. And I would say that all of us, even our sinful flesh is going to rear against it, all of us want the rule of a king. A benevolent king who protects us from evil, because we can't do that ourselves, who provides us good, and who grants us freedom under just and gracious rule. Now, in human society, there's many different forms of government. We can study our world history. But I am arrested by the fact that I need a king. This Advent, we're looking in Isaiah 8 and 9. Last week, we looked at the remnant of the Lord. Today, we will look at the reign of the Lord, his rule. And on Christmas Eve, we'll look at his resolve, his zeal. In these dark days of every generation, God is preserving a faithful remnant. This is where we were last week, and this is a word that may be unfamiliar to you. Your remnant is, this is what happens when we go to the fabric store, to the carpet shop, and someone's already taken off what they want, and the remnant is the leftovers that often are at a reduced price. Biblically, the remnant are the leftover people, the people who are not kind of rolled themselves out and given themselves over to the immorality and the idolatry of the world of their day, but they're the leftover people who've remained faithful unto God. Last week, we talked about how one Bible dictionary defines remnant like this. What is left of a community after it goes, undergoes a catastrophe? And so the question I think we're praying through is in the crises and catastrophes of this day, how is God preserving a faithful remnant? The remnant knows the presence of God. Did you hear that when we reread this passage? Verse 10 of chapter 8, God is with us. The remnant knows the fear of God. Verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. 
The remnant knows the word of God. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among the disciples. So even though there are those who are thrust into deep darkness, the remnant knows the presence of God, they know a fear of God, and they know the word of God. This is because God rules them. He is their king. In this very familiar passage of chapter 9, we'll look at it in two blocks. Verses 1 through 3, the rule of God is described. In verses 4 through 7, the reign of Christ the king is prophesied. In each of these movements, we're going to see what God does, what God's people enjoy, and then what follows. What is the best form of government? The rule of God in the reign of Christ the King. Look with me here in verses 1. No gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way, even to Galilee of the nations. Isaiah, he's a prophet. He speaks the word of God. He ministered in the southern kingdom of Israel. Israel now is a divided kingdom, a northern kingdom, and a southern kingdom. Israel and Judah. Elijah and Elisha ministered about 100 years earlier in the northern kingdom. But now Isaiah and Micah are contemporaries. They're ministering in the southern kingdom in the early or the late 700s B.C. And it's weird because you got to do the math. We're near B.C. The numbers are decreasing. So when I say the, the later 700s, it's 742 to 701. Isaiah is giving warning of present sin, but he's also giving promise of future salvation. Israel and Samaria, the northern kingdom, are going to be conquered by Assyria during his ministry in 722. But then later in 586, Judah and Jerusalem are going to get sacked by the Babylonians. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, we will just read this, and these are just geographical terms we'll we'll skip over because maybe we don't understand what's going on there. But God is now going to come to his people where they've suffered most. This northern part, this Galilee, this is where the foreign armies would invade first. So Galilee, this northern kingdom, was always on the front line of attack from foreign countries. And so they're suffering most from foreign nations, but it's also from this place on where God's salvation is going to come. Galilee of the nations Where they suffered the most is the place where God will launch salvation for the world. Prophets had visions of different times. Do you see the time here? At the former time, Galilee was the first to know contempt. 
strife, war, raids, taken into exile. But in the latter time, they would know glory. Galilee would first know the glory of God's salvation, the light of the Messiah. Prophets had visions of different times. Isaiah is able to see, he's sitting here in the 700s, but he sees a, a, a latter time. He sees the time of Messiah's coming. In the latter time, he's made glorious the way. So imagine how it, just have some empathy for Isaiah here for a moment. He's sitting here suffering, seeing the sin of his people in the present time, but then he's going to see through this time and see that God's going to judge his people for that sin, and then he's going to, God's going to bring salvation for his people for that sin, from that sin. And now Isaiah's seeing into these times, and he's turning around trying to speak to the people of that time. He's in so many different times. He's seeing so much. He's trying, in the Hebrew language here, the perfect. Hebrew doesn't really have tenses like we have past tense, future tense, present. It's the perfect. And the tense here for all these verbs is the perfect, it's, which means a completed action. He's seeing stuff that's already done. So even in your Bible translations, it's almost in the past tense because it's already completed. Isaiah's seeing things that are already sure they're going to happen. Not only is he seeing time, he's seeing spiritual realities. Chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and two covered his face, and two covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." I have empathy for this man because prophets just almost were almost lamenting souls because they just almost were on overload on the information they were carrying. They're in present sin. They're seeing future judgment, future salvation, and then heavenly realities. And then trying to minister faithfully in the day that they were in. But as he's seeing different times, different realities, I want to ask you, where is our vision? What are you seeing today? What are you beholding? Are we just navel-gazing at the grind of our own lives, at our own daily anxieties and worries and responsibilities? Are we so collapsed in that all we see is this, ourselves? Are we so stuck in the feedback loop of the 24-hour news cycle and the ebbs of flow of what's happening doesn't happen, happens, doesn't Is that all that we're beholding? Or can we look up and see the completed work of Messiah? Not only what we see in the past, but what we know has been said into the future. And you don't have to be a prophet to do this because we have God's word. 
God's word shows us different times and different realities. We have God's word to show us this glorious way. And in the place of contempt comes the glory of salvation. Up there in the north of Galilee, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Matthew chapter 4. And when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea and the territory of Zebulon of Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. And from that time forth, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From the place of contempt comes the glory of salvation. Contemptible Galilee, now comes the glorious Savior. I get ahead of myself, a contemptible cross. It's what completes our salvation. Don't look down on the contemptible. It may be the very place that God is working. And so what are the overlooked places in our life? What are these contemptible places? places in our life? Where do we expect God never to work? Can anything good come out of Roanoke? Could God really save that person? See, we got to get our vision renewed. You got to get, stop navel gazing, stop in the feedback loop, and see once again and lift up our eyes to see where from where our help comes. God brings glory from the place of contempt, and God's people enjoy light. Verse 2. This is salvation to know the light of life after walking in darkness. On them light has shone. Light. It's in our name, city, light. Light is actually a familiar and favorite theme, not just among Christians, but among humanity. What does it mean for someone to become enlightened, enlightened. So in the history of Western civilization, the enlightenment, means coming into light, was the philosophical movement of the 18th century in which human reason became primary authority. Now there are blessings, that, there are common grace blessings that God worked through that unto humanity. God is always at work. But we were elevating human reason as final authority in the Enlightenment. What about other world religions or philosophies such as Buddhism? Enlightenment is where we attain nirvana. I walk through the Buddhist temples there in Bangkok, the state of ultimate and perfect existence, trying to rid ourselves of desire and hatred and just, just be taken up and to enlightenment. But whether it's our own reason or our own spiritual 
I don't want to say endeavor because you don't strive. You're trying to stop striving in Buddhism. The spiritual surrender, those are something we achieve. Our natural reason, our spiritual practice. But who does the enlightenment here in verse 2? They've seen a great light, those who walked in darkness. On them light has shone. They are the object of the action. This is the action that God does. We walk in darkness, not in any light in ourselves, but God shines light upon us. On them light has shone. Once again, this is the perfect, this is a completed action. Isaiah is seeing something that's already done. Who is this word that became flesh? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It is God who qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom, political word there, kingdom of his beloved son. This is Jesus. I am the light of the world. Is he the light of our life? Is he what we are beholding? Do we see his completed work? And is that our faith? Is that our trust? Is that our joy? We don't become enlightened on our own. God shines light on us. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the rule of, of God in our hearts, the light of his glory. And what follows, verse 3, joy. In the dark days of every generation, God's preserving a faithful remnant. And yes, narrow is the way, but this remnant is multiplied. It becomes a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from every tribe, all peoples and languages, who cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's no surprise. God does not change. In meeting the, the nomad Abram back in the day, generations ago, Abraham, you're going to be the father of nations. Look up at the stars. Can you number them? Look at the sand of the seashore. Can you number it? And old man Abraham and Sarah became father and mother of this great nation, the nation of faith. How is this accomplished? God multiplied the nation. Verse 3, and God increased its joy. What are the two pictures of joy here? A seasonal harvest. Some of us are not dependent upon our food from our gardens. It's a hobby for most of us. I don't think I've got any farmers in here who are depending upon that for their living. It's just to have some extra vegetables you don't have to go to the grocery store for. But if that's your substance and a harvest comes in, joy at the harvest. I do know some of you have served in the military. Some of you have had family members serve in the military, even into wars. And so the joy that comes through military victory is described here. 
When was the last time you rejoiced with great joy? I want you to have an answer to that. Let's not go Eeyore. What was my... When was the last time you rejoiced with great joy? Received the big bonus at work? Thank you guys again for the generosity to, to Pastor Chris and I. We didn't open up and get like the Jelly of the Month Club, you know. It's the, it's the gift that keeps on giving, Dad. Celebrating a championship with a team that you've sweated with through a season. A wedding day, no matter what that's going to be like. And to these days, the birth of a child or a grandchild. When was the last time you rejoiced with great joy? A Lord of the Rings movie marathon weekend? I think I went back to that one. That was like January, February. And even though it's not from Lord of the Rings, it's from The Hobbit. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Thorin Oakenshield. There are common graces for life in this world, but what is joy inexpressible? It's knowing the salvation of our souls, knowing Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, joy and glory go together. And what is this? The outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Do you have joy in your salvation in Christ Jesus? Did you hear Justin when he led us into the Advent reading today? I didn't realize that that was even there. Our chief end, the old catechism tells us, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever is the way it's worded. Our chief end, singular, one purpose, is to glorify God and, there's a conjunction, there's two things, and enjoy him forever. Well, if it's one end, these got to go together. You're going to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so this is really how the ministry of like desiring God with John Piper really takes this and changes. It's like we glorify God most by enjoying him. God is most glorified in us when he is, we're most satisfied in him. What does it mean to enjoy God God is spirit. Do you see him? How do we enjoy God? How do you enjoy another person? A family member, a friend. You enjoy who they are. You, en you appreciate their personhood. You enjoy them. You enjoy what they do. You appreciate their work, their interest. You enjoy being with them. You have relationship with them. We are created in God's image. We are relational beings of the created by the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How are we enjoying God? And yet in this Sunday of joy, Justin led us to, are we just seeking the pleasures of this world? 
Are we just being dutiful in religion? Are we despairing of life, doubting of God? The psalmist tells us, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 37, 4. Command. Not a suggestion. Delight yourself in the Lord. And then when you can't do that, when you're having a hard time figuring out how to do that, the psalmist David also tells us, pray this, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Psalm 51. This is the rule of God in our hearts. It's the light of God's glory and our joy in him. Let's get a little more specific here because the Messiah is prophesied. Verses 4 through 7. There's three consecutive clauses here. Each verse begins with four. Why are we to be joyful? Because verse 4, God has delivered us from oppression. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod, staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. I like everything that it says there, but what does that mean on the day of Midian? What day was that? What happened on that day? And why does that talk about this reality? And this is Judges 7, when the e people continue to do evil in the sight of the Lord, the cycles of, all right, they would follow God, but then they would quickly fall away, and God would send judges to deliver them. And in the story of Gideon, the most reluctant warrior, judge, God sent him into battle. And Gideon went in with 32,000 men. And God, through just a most precarious story, whittled it down to 300. Everyone else is sent home. Gideon, it's you and these 300 against the troops, the masses. All right, well, what's our strategy, Lord? I want you to blow a trumpet. I want you to break a jar. I want you to hold up torches. And that very act, the Lord threw the Midianites into a panic so that they fled and killed each other. They were in such fear and panic and such confusion, they were slaughtering themselves. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The battle is the Lord's. So who leads the charge into the new age of God's kingdom? Gideon was incredible. We got a better Gideon. There's a prophesied Messiah who's going to be a better Gideon. And the battle is his. What do the people enjoy? They enjoy victory. Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The Messiah King not only wins the victory but ends the war. So one person writes it this way, every mechanism for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. The passive voice here, will be burned, whispers that from this victory is not our accomplishment. We don't achieve it. We just step onto the battlefield after the victory is won, and all we have to do is celebrate. Isaiah's already had prophetic vision of this victory. 
in chapter 2 of this major book. It shall come to pass in the latter days that on the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, shall be elected above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes from many peoples. Listen. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I told you last week, I get to listen to Q99 now, and they're like throwing all these Christmas hymns out. Hark the Herald, I mean, beautiful hymns. But I also got to like endure these like, like these peacetime utopian type songs too. Like, do they know it's Christmas over there? And, and it's going to, all these, um, they're trying to live into this reality. Like we're going to, one Christmas, we're not going to have any more war. Because of what we did, because of what we're going to accomplish. No, it's only because the Lord comes and makes all things right and all things new. And even though these days seem long, can you imagine the eternal age that awaits us of perfect peace in the Lord's presence? But even here, there's a curious reference to a he that we'll go up to, who will teach us, who will judge us. Isaiah is speaking about going up to the Lord God but this is a figure. Well, who is this? Well, Derek, you didn't organize your sermon very well. You've already told us this is Jesus of Nazareth. You've already spilled the beans that in Matthew chapter 4, he's going to fulfill it and he's going to come out of Galilee. The people who walked in darkness are going to see the light of God's salvation is Jesus of Nazareth. I know it's Jesus, but how did he come and Stand amazed again at how this is foretold. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Another pastor says it this way, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. To the terror of demonic forces, to the evil of this world, to the sin of our hearts, a baby is born. Is born. Do you see the, I can't stop the prophetic voice here. Isaiah saw it as completed action, sure, surety to happen. The child is the fulfillment of God's promises. Let me share a few. He is the promised offspring of Eve. Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15, the very first time the gospel is preached. The Lord God said to the serpent, Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
This child is the promised offspring of Abraham, the descendant who would be the blessing to the nations with an inheritance of land for an everlasting possession. This son is the promised heir of David in the royal line. The Lord spoke to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This child, verse 6, will shoulder the government. Verse 4, as on the day of Midian, what was on our shoulder, the oppression upon us, the tyranny on us, the evil of this world, enslavement to sin that was upon us, that is broken. That's no longer on our shoulders. But instead, this figure comes, this baby, this child comes, and bears the government on his. We cannot shoulder the worries of the world. We cannot shoulder the oppression of evil. The Messiah King not only takes these burdens off of us, he puts it on his shoulders. He bears our burdens for us. And he bears the burden of ruling over us, this benevolent monarch. Well, Derek, it says in the scriptures that you were to bear one another's burdens. I know, and we can only do that in Christ. If I try to do that in my flesh to bear your burdens, if I try to do that in pastoral ministry and just take all your sorrows and just heap them on myself and my flesh, I'm going to wear myself out. And if you try to care for me, as some of you have in this weekend, and you're just going to do that in the flesh, bear my burdens, you'll wear yourself out. He bears our burdens. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful counselor. Literally, it means wonder counselor. So does this mean he's a supernatural counselor or one who gives supernatural counsel? Yes. We can take trust in him because he gives wisdom from on high. He is the mighty God, but this title has already been used in Isaiah chapter 10. A remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. We can take confidence in him. He gives protection and deliverance. He is the everlasting father. We see this title later on in Isaiah chapter 63. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Chapter 64. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hand. So if he's the father, we can take joy in him, trust in him, and his abundant steadfast love. He is the prince of peace. This is not just merely non-conflict. This is completeness, wholeness, shalom. We can rest in him because he makes all things new. And how did this person, this figure come? As a baby. God's answer to everything that's terrorized us came as a baby to deliver us. And as this person, our trust and our confidence, our rest and our joy. Of the increase, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David 
over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I know some of you are church people. You've been in church all your life. Some of you are perhaps not. And this is just the wonder that we should never just get so familiar with. And I hope that you're not familiar with it. It just arrests you like, this is actually what you believe. Because I'm dealing with a question that we should, it doesn't make sense here, the things I've been saying. How can someone be of human lineage, a baby born, a child given, someone from the line of David? How can you have human lineage, but also divine authority? How can you have a human throne, but an everlasting kingdom? How can you just be born? and yet be called mighty God. We're getting told both of these realities. Is this, is this a human or is this God? Which is it? And friends, be over, this is the beauty, the mystery, the wonder of the incarnation. The Messiah King, the one we've longed for, for generations, who finally came at the fullness of time, is actually God himself come to us in our flesh. He is fully human and fully divine. He is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. But how can this be? It's because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Y'all like Santa Claus, right? Saint Nick, don't cross him on this doctrine. Because at the Council of Nicaea, some heretic wanted to get in the church, Arius, and deny the divinity of Christ. And jolly old Saint Nicholas punched him there at a church leader meeting. We cannot sacrifice one or the other. That's a real story. Go look that one up. This Messiah King is Jesus of Nazareth. And who is this Jesus of Nazareth in this backwoods town? It's God in the flesh. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the King of all. What do you believe to be the best form of government? There's so much I could say, and according to what's been put out this past week, I would kill our live stream right away if I wanted to talk about present realities, governmental realities. And there's so much to consider in the news cycle and in our lives. But my question right now, even though I could go global, national, my question for you is personal. Who rules your heart? Because all this, we can get excited about and interested in and all this, but if God does not rule your heart, you're an enemy of God. Are you your own majesty? Are you your own sovereign? This is why the world is a mess. Everyone is trying to be their own God. 
and even then our desire to be ruled over. We hand that off to sinful people who oppress and labor hard on the backs. But this is the revelation of God. The rule of God and the reign of Christ the King. And friends, will you let Jesus rule your heart today as you know the light of God's glory and as you take joy in him? Will today, will you let the peace of Christ rule your hearts? As Paul exhorted the church in Colossae, will you let the truth of Christ rule your hearts? Will you let the joy of the Lord fill your hearts as he is king? For all that's happening before us, Nothing's going to change if we do not let him change us. Derek, I can't wait for that kingdom to come. It's already here. It's already here. Where's the boundaries? Like, where's the lines on the? It's a spiritual kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. It's in changed hearts in a wisdom that's not of this world, in a way that seems foolish to this world, God is building a kingdom. And it's through changed hearts who are submitted to his rule. Who rules your heart this day? What is the best form of human government? I'm thankful to God to be born into a constitutional republic. Grateful for the privileges and liberties I've had. And however long that lasts, that. But what I know for now and eternity, I'm under the rule of a benevolent monarch, a gracious monarch, who not only delivers me from evil, not only gives me good, but is gracious in his rule over me that I, I have freedom. I have freedom in Christ. Who rules your heart? Let's pray.